UFOs? Are they aliens? Government secret projects? The imaginings of disturbed individuals? Or just outright hoaxes? We're here to find out. Welcome to Jim Harold's UFO Encounters. Welcome to UFO Encounters. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And I'm very honored to have our guest today, Peter Robbins. We're going to talk a little bit about one of the greatest UFO experiences ever, and that's that of the Rendlesham Forest incident in England. And I must tell you, it is Britain's Roswell, and sometimes one that we might lose a little sight of in the shadow of something like Roswell, but it's certainly incredible. Peter has been at this UFO investigation area for uh, almost 30 years. Uh, He's prolific and uh, a well-known speaker, and that's how I got to know of him. I actually saw him speak in person. I was very impressed. And uh, today we're going to talk about his uh, book, Left at Eastgate, and I believe a expanded version was uh, released just a few short months ago. So I wanted to talk uh, about that, and the introduction to that book was written by the late, great Bud Hopkins. Anybody who's been interested in the UFO phenomena certainly knows that name, and uh, most of you will also know the name of our guest today, Peter Robbins. Peter, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining us. Well, you're welcome, Jim, and I'm delighted to be on. Peter, I really look forward to talking about Rendlesham, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you will be doing a Paranormal Plus course. We're going to do a two-part UFO talk. The first part will be May 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern. You can go right now, and uh, Plus members can sign up. Just go over to jimherald.net. That'll be 10 p.m. Eastern on May 6th, and we'll be talking about why we should take UFOs seriously. And I'm really looking forward to that because, Peter, I've heard you speak, as I said, and uh, you're a great speaker, and I think our audience will enjoy that. But now on to the matter at hand, Rendlesham. So let's start from the beginning. There may be somebody out there who has not heard of the Rendlesham Forest incident. So uh, briefly, can you kind of lay the land of what happened, when it happened, and and why it's so compelling? Sure. Uh, Let me begin by saying that um, I'm the co-author, not the author of the book. Um, I wrote it with Larry Warren, whose story in great part the book centers around at the time of these events, Larry was a United States Air Force security police officer who was involved in one of the incidents that comprised the uh, so-called Rendlesham Forest UFO uh, incident. And um, the book was actually reissued in an expanded version some years back. And we're, we're very proud of both editions. But to get to your point, um, these events occurred in Suffolk, England, that's uh, 70, 80 miles away from London, um, in late December of 1980, over the course of three consecutive evenings, and involved nothing less than a series of sequential and separate incidents that cover almost every aspect of UFO studies, Jim, uh, from the appearance of what I can only call craft to their landings, to the appearance of beings, to many types of physical evidences. Uh, The best I feel, uh, which we were able to establish, um, a certainly first-rate legitimate cover-up, a paper trail in terms of military documentation, the first-hand testimony of now quite a number uh, of the men who were involved in it with the Air Force, 
and also um, a respectable number of civilians who also live in the area. The events began, uh, as I recall, the night after Christmas, the 26th of December, when several law enforcement police officers, different from the security cops, observed a light go down in the Rendlesham Forest. Uh, they were at the time stationed at the east gate of RAF Bentwater's sister base, which is RAF Woodbridge, five or six miles away, and radioed into uh, their command uh, for permission to investigate. Now, it, what they observed, from what I understand, did not indicate a crash per se. There was no ground concussion, no explosion, no fire. But this was at a very delicate point in the Cold War, and uh, certainly it was appropriate for them to investigate. The two um, uh, law enforcement police that actually went into that area were confronted by a machine of undetermined origin. There's no other way to say it. That was seven or nine feet on a side. It was uh, triangular, tapering upward. The surface, as they've described it, was more like black glass than anything. Uh, one of the men, Jim Penniston, took out his field notebook, recorded the symbols or signs or hieroglyphics, whatever you want to call them, that he observed on it. Um, neither he nor John Burroughs, the other first-hand witness from the first night, have complete memories and are still wrestling with what they saw. Uh, these men, as well as others, including my co-author, uh, were jerked around six ways from Sunday and uh, meddled with, so to say, by American intelligence to a degree that um, was unconscionable. Uh, also, the first night, unknowns were seen shining beams of light that right now I guess we would describe as kind of industrial lasers into the weapons storage area. And at that time, in violation of our treaty with Great Britain at that time, uh, would have held nuclear ordinance as well as more conventional. Um, over the next two nights, um, the deputy base commander um, with a small team went out to look into this for himself as a skeptic, but brought his uh, tape recorder and recorded a very yes. encounter. That was uh, Colonel Halt at the time. Um, he also came upon a landing site with three equilateral impressions in the soil, plaster casts were taken. Um, the physical evidence from part of the third night's event, the one that my co-author and I were involved in, um, was the result of a very thorough uh, analysis of the soil where this craft sat. And I should say when Larry and I first returned to that area, it was more than eight years later, and you could see a difference in the soil. And when I returned again a year and a half later to draw those samples for professional investigation, it was also very apparent that that area was different. Um, men, including Larry, were taken to a secured facility under the base where they were also um, put through a, a series of uh, hoops um, under altered state conditions. And to this day, uh, Larry, Jim, John, other men who were involved are unclear about certain aspects of their memories which are absolutely authentic and which were implanted and implanted by us rather than them, so to speak. 
And that is the briefest possible sketch of the Rendlesham Forest incident, again, occurring in late December 1980. Why do you think, with all of the different aspects of it, witnesses who are credible, members of the military and so forth, and multiple happenings over multiple days and evenings, why hasn't this become a household word for the average person? I know those of us interested in UFO phenomena are aware of Rendlesham very much so, but for the average person, if you walk up and say Roswell, they'll know exactly what you're talking about. If you say Rendlesham, they'll say Rendell what? Why do you think this has not risen to the level of a Roswell? Well, I, I think that's a, a great question that requires sort of a multiple response. First, if you were to ask that question to a random sampling people all over Great Britain, the recognition factor would, in fact, be there. It's called uh, Britain's Roswell, not because it bears um, similarities to the events of uh, um, the summer of 1947 in New Mexico, but simply because it is the best known and now best documented UFO incident in Great Britain's history. Um, I think in terms of why it's not better known in America, part of the reason is, ironically, somewhat xenophobic. Uh, to a lot of folks in this country, if it didn't happen here, how important can it be? Uh, which is not the most productive attitude, but unfortunately one that um, is held by uh, a segment of our population. Also, and this dovetails into the talk that you heard me do last September in Cleveland, the extraordinary sticking power of the so-called ridicule factor, so-called by me anyway, um, of feeling self-conscious about taking UFOs seriously has been hammered into you and I and our parents and grandparents going back to the summer of 1947 by the American media. And while every year, I think it's fair to say more and more people do take this subject more seriously, its overall hold on the American media and a good percentage of our fellow citizens is still very impressive. Now, the, a point that interests me is many people would say, or skeptics, let's say, let's take skeptics, for instance. They would say, of course, the military and intelligence and so forth were sensitive to this base and tried to get these guys to be quiet because, as you stated, um, many of us forget 1980 was uh, a very, very kind of hair trigger time in the Cold War. Yeah. As you said, there were nuclear uh, ordnance stored uh, in those facilities, which were not supposed to be there. Right. So the fact that the government was trying to quiet this down is not in and of itself any kind of proof that there was anything from another world going on. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that observation? Well, um, certainly, uh, that would happen in any security situation uh, during that period of time and going back some decades earlier and almost a decade after that. However, uh, what this wide assortment of American Air Force personnel observed and reported in the cases of the men who have been willing to come forward and several women as well, supported by the accounts of local individuals who know that area and that sky very well, also are aware of some of the most, or were at the time, some of America's most classified aircraft because they were being flown out of uh, RAF uh, Bentwaters at the time and things that we didn't even know about, like our earliest stealth deployments, um, 
it was a U-2 base, an SR-71 base. But what they observed and the history of the area uh, going back some decades as far as anomalous activity of lights in the night sky, of things that we can only call UFOs, and again, that simply means unidentified flying objects, um, the, that standard idea of going in to um, quiet things down or to debrief these men, um, there's still a lot of rough edges and loose threads uh, that make this an event that is very singular. Now, the craft that, or the machine that they saw, I've heard um, reports that there were actually some type of writing or hieroglyphics on the craft that had been made out. Um, what what do you have to report on that? Because that, to me, is fascinating, not only to see, I guess, for lack of a better word, possibly a ship, but also to see writing on it. That had to be incredibly chilling. Yeah, <clears throat> there were several craft, <clears throat> excuse me, types of craft observed. The one that I referred to to start with on the first night um, was indeed the one that had writing, for lack of a more descriptive term, on it. And um, again, one of the eyewitnesses, Jim Penniston, um, at a certain point in observing this machine uh, with John Burroughs, took out his field notebook and noted, you know, um, in that notebook, um, from memory and from looking at it, well, actually looking at it, as he says, um, what these markings look like. Uh, they have been part of the subject of a, an assortment of UFO-related documentaries over the years and, uh, you know, covered in, in, in ufology to some great degree. Um, more than that, I can't say, number one, obviously, because I wasn't there, and number two, because I've never worked with Jim on this. The craft that Larry Warren observed, my co-author, did not have any discernible markings. Now, when you um, when you look at this case, what is the, the uh, what are the one or two things that really stand out to you that you say, "Wow, this is really something different than other things that we've seen," and you feel like shaking the world by the, the lapels and saying, "Look at this! Look at this!" Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, uh, one or two things for sure. When Larry and I first went back to England to investigate this, I thought it was going to be my only trip there. I mean, how many times do you have to go? We were starting to work on a book that I thought we'd complete in a year or two and, uh, you know, have a big hit with. Uh, we did not here. We did there. Um, in fact, the project took almost 10 years to complete. It cost us pretty much everything that we had and did go on to become a, a true bestseller in the United Kingdom. But one of the most poignant memories I have, and I'm glad to say I audio taped almost everything over those years in terms of conversations and events that I was involved with, interviews, etc., was walking back through the Rendlesham Forest to the field called Cable Green, where Larry's part of the events occurred on the third night. And he was going back there for the first time in eight years and two months, and somewhat distant, um, you know, um, it, certainly thinking his own thoughts. And as we got to that point, where the forest cover started to break away, Jim, and we could see the field for the first time, 
I knew where I was. I had been studying it for seven months or so and had a good book sense of this location. Anyway, his right arm shot out and pointed out into the field, and he said it sat there. And Mm. they were both quiet for an extended period of seconds, and he followed up by saying, but of course, that area that I'm pointing to, that's a coincidence that it looks different than the surrounding field. And in fact, it did look different. It was a large oval, roughly oval shape that um, you could clearly see a discoloration in the soil. There was no crop in. It was February. My first reaction, being that this is the way uh, I'm trained to see things, was not, oh my gosh, look, there's a mark from the machine. Come on, it's eight years and two months later. Um, It could have been a play of light. Lightning could have hit the area six months before. Uh, A ton of nitrate fertilizer could have been dumped on that spot and not fully graded out. And I was happy with that explanation until we spent some time in the field that afternoon and from every angle it still looked different. I took a handful of the soil from close to the center of what we now know was the affected area and several control samples and they felt different. Uh, they, they were different and so I used, <clears throat> this is 1988, and so I used some of my empty 35 millimeter little plastic film canisters that some of your older listeners may recall. I remember those. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you've just dated yourself. Um, and I marked them very carefully. In fact, I used the little sticky labels from my uh, audio tape boxes to cite whether they were control samples or ground zero samples, so to say. And uh, we did a rudimentary experiment at our bed and breakfast, which was take an equal amount of soil from the affected area and from a control area, put it in the same two separate jar lids, put in an equal amount of water. The control sample became mud in a matter of seconds. And no matter what I did, even after several minutes of stirring or working it with the back of the spoon, I could not get that sample to turn to mud. It either sank to the bottom or floated on the top like dust. When I returned to the area in 1990, that summer, Um, and I could see the difference in the crop that that area was now green and the rest of the field was yellow. I knew that there something was going on. And so I returned again, this time after consulting with and engaging a laboratory, a research laboratory in Massachusetts, uh, to do the tests. And they had sent me a number of quart containers Uh, And I drew somewhere between 15 and 20 pounds of soil because that's what they needed for their full investigation. Um, To jump to the results, though, um, number one, the ability of the affected soil to retain moisture had been virtually destroyed. It was very difficult even under laboratory conditions to get them to be able to have that soil reconstitute properly with water. Uh, It did look different, that they felt was not a big deal, that sometimes happens in farm fields. However, when they did seed germination tests, the uh, crops that they planted in the control samples grew into normal seedlings at a um, prescribed rate. The same seeds in the affected samples took much longer to grow and only mutant strains emerged. Hence why that oval was still green when everything around it had gone to hay. More, um, there were 
sand-sized metallic grains in that soil, which sometimes occurs, and there were an excess of four times the amount in the affected area uh, as in the control samples, which suggested only um, one cause to our analyst, who um, is a real person. He has remained a friend and continued actually specialized in doing uh, research and uh, testing of organic materials that alleged to have been through uh, anomalous situations, his name is Matthew Moniz, he lives in Massachusetts still, was that an extraordinarily powerful electromagnetic effect had exerted itself on that area. Uh, next, and for me as dramatic as anything, this occurred five or six miles from the coast. One would anticipate a percentage of sand in the farm soil, which was the case in all of the control samples. It was not in the affected sample. Hmm. was no sand. It had been uh, reduced, in Matt's words, to an interim form of glass. It was silica. The sand had melted. Now, wow. that, for me, is a dramatic series of results. Uh, the retinas of my co-author's eyes were burned when this thing appeared in the field in front of him and other men. Uh, with such a blinding flash, and we know that because it's confirmed in his Air Force medical records after the fact. Jumping to another area, which I think is very compelling, December 28, 2010, the actual 30th anniversary of, I believe, the last night of these events, there was a small conference to mark that fact uh, back in Woodbridge, England. I spoke, as did Linda Howe, who was working with um, Penniston and Burroughs at the time, um, uh, Larry came up and said hi, but was not a speaker. Nick Pope was also there, not a speaker, but participated in the panel discussion. Now, when John Burroughs was up on the stage and taking questions from people, there was an exchange that I found incredibly compelling, very moving, very disturbing, um, and altogether unforgettable. Uh, the first question in the series was to the effect of, John, is it true? as I've heard, that when you and Jim came upon this craft of undetermined origin in the woods, you pulled your service weapon and went into a two-handed stance. John's response was to the effect of, I think so, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Next question. John, is it true, as I've heard, that when you confronted this craft, you impulsively threw yourself on it and it went about 10 meters before you let go? I may have. I'm not sure. I don't mm -hmm. know if it was a real memory or not. John, were you abducted? I don't know. I'm not sure whether it really happened or it was put into my head. These things are indicative of the power of this series of events. And in fact, to this day, um, the chess pieces are still be being moved around. Uh, I contend that the former deputy base commander has um, done his best to isolate Larry, make him try to seem uh, like he was a wannabe or made things up or um, was so totally uh, mentally confused that nothing he says can be true, but at the same time supports Jim Penniston's statements, which now are considered incredibly uh, controversial by many of us, that Jim says that he knows for an absolute fact that the intelligences behind this event time travelers from our future and that he will be establishing that 
in no uncertain terms for all of us with the book that Nick Pope is writing uh, about his and John's experiences that is due out, I believe, late this year. Um, there is still a certain amount of acrimony between certain witnesses. Uh, we're now, goodness, um, more than 33 years after the fact, I think this is a case that still is as contentious um, as any case in the history of UFO studies, and I certainly think it's among the very most significant. And um, and that that kind of uh, you've uh, uh, kind of ferreted out a question I was going to offer: Is it still developing? It sounds like it is really developing, and there are new revelations all the time, and we should keep a close eye and ear on what's going on because who knows what might eventually come out. Well, they're either new revelations or new alleged revelations. What we need, of course, would be uh, be wonderful if uh, the American government, the British government, would declassify their files on these things. We shouldn't hold our breaths waiting for that. Uh, new witnesses coming forward is always a plus, and there was a time when I encouraged them to do so. Now, um, I'm somewhat circumspect on that because one of the main things that they will be having to deal with is attacks uh, on their credibility, on their character, um, as was pioneered by my co-author, who was not A, but the whistleblower, and came forward in 1982, and his account was made public in 83. So if somebody out there is listening by some happenstance and they have some knowledge of it, you wouldn't necessarily say, please bring it forward because there may be a very high price to pay? Well, I would say uh, educate yourself to what has happened to Larry. Uh, read our book. Um, read the other books on the subject. Uh, look at some of the lectures. Speak with your family. Uh, discuss it with people whose opinions you trust. And decide whether or not you want to become a public person in this very, very uh, dramatic series of events that will not go away. This one is never going away, Jim. Well, one one final question, and then I want to find out where folks can find the book and more information about you. Now, we're talking about something that's happened well over 30 years ago. Obstensibly, well, the Soviet Union doesn't exist, so the Cold War is over, although it, looking up like we might be lining up for uh, a new one with uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the Soviet Union is gone. Uh, it is now known that there were nuclear weapons there in violation of a treaty, so that... That has been brought forth, so there's no reason to hide that. You talk about planes like the SR-71, which, you know, there's books written about Area 51 and Skunk Works and all that every day, it seems like. So most of these things that were, quote, secret at the base, as far as we know, have been brought to light. So why would the U.S. government and the British government, why would they want to cover up? I mean, I can understand why they would want to cover it up in 1980 because of all these secret things going on at the space. Why do you think they want to cover it up 30 years plus hence? Well, probably for the same reason they've never been forthcoming since at least 1947. Uh, we live in um, a country which unfortunately has become a security state. Um, secrecy is its religion, and there seems to be an obsession with classification of material that could either prove embarrassing to the forces that be or the forces that were, 
And part of the reason that um, the cover-up continues, and make no mistake, um, there is a cover-up, for lack of a more descriptive term, in place and has been for many decades. Part of the reason may be the embarrassment of how little we do know about these phenomena, um, their origin, uh, their intentions, um, decades after we began to make it a top priority. Uh, and the people at the top um, have been dominated by, uh, you know, powerful white guys who um, love their uh, roles in, in history. Um, there are ever so many reasons. Uh, they still hark back to uh, the mass psychology of panic. Uh, which has been um, a mainstay of naysayers for coming forward with the truth since um, the results of Orson Welles' brilliant Halloween Eve broadcast in 1938 and the limited panic that occurred in that situation. And let's face it, um, you and I and certainly people that uh, we know and are interested in this same subject have a certain amount of readiness and willingness to learn more about this, but we are not representative of, um, I, I believe, the greater national uh, majority and the international uh, community, uh, especially with relevance to people who hold strong fundamentalist beliefs, whether they be secular or religious. This is going to blow a lot of people's, you know, core stories and legends and myths and um, dogma and it will be a time of tremendous transition and very troubling to many of our fellow human beings um you know those are some of the reasons but there these secrets are being kept and the reasons probably haven't changed for keeping them well one thing that uh, hasn't changed is you were fascinating in september when i saw you <laughs> speak and fascinating uh, yet again and we've uh, enjoyed this brief discussion and where can people go on the internet to find information about you and where can they find the book um my website is under construction right now again uh it should be up a few months from this broadcast at peterrobbins.net otherwise they're welcome to friend me on facebook um, and my next public appearance will be at a wonderful conference in Sebring, Florida, in, again in May. Uh, for information on that, your listeners can visit starworksusa.com, which will give you all the information. Um, and I'm a pretty regular fixture on shows like yours. Um, as far as the book goes, Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation by Larry Warren and myself, um, can be found at any of the big online booksellers, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com. Uh, go for the 2005 edition uh, published by Cosmo Press in New York. Uh, unless you are a manic book collector and love editions <laughs> and hardcovers, which is fine, too. Um, we remain very proud of this book. Or they can contact me through your show or um, through Facebook or via my own email address, which is my first initial and last name and state, P-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at Yahoo. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, P-R-O-B-B-I-N-S-N-Y at yahoo.com, and I can arrange to send them a signed copy directly uh, from me. That uh, sounds absolutely fantastic, Peter Robbins. Thank you for joining us on the program today. So glad to be with you, Jim, and look forward to returning. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed the program as much as we did. And we'll talk to you next time. Have a great week, everybody.